Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Te Yi Liu. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bring you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B Y O N D. On the score headlines, as per UNESCO, 670 million children and adolescents around the world are not reaching minimum proficiency levels in reading and mathematics. This learning crisis has posed a serious threat towards the progress towards our fourth Sustainable Development Goal, which calls for action to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated this crisis across the world, disproportionately affecting the most marginalized students in high, middle, and low-income countries. In this episode, we try to learn about the different strategies and perspectives on the issue of the learning crisis in Canada and underdeveloped countries, and we further delve into exploring ways we can address the worsened learning crisis post-pandemic. Due to the widened education gap, our first guest today is Dr. Nina Basio. She is a professor in the Department of Adult Education at Ontario Institute for Studies in Education of University of Toronto. She is also a visiting professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education. She is the founding director of the Collaborative Program in Education Policy. Professor Nina is a leading scholar of education policy. As it intersects with schools as organizations, and particularly with teachers' work, she has just completed 14 months of study on teachers' work during the pandemic, and has a book coming out next month on the same project. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, starting with our first question, we would like you to talk a little about whether you think that there is a learning crisis in Canada right now. And do you think that whether the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the way the outcome of this particular problem is? There is a learning crisis. Yes, I agree with that. In Canada,、um, it's not、uh, distributed evenly over the whole student population.、Um, there are、um, vast differences between different student populations, and the pandemic. Uh, made those differences even starker、uh, and more visible, and so a lot of people are trying trying to、um, think about how we can go back to how things were and make up for what was lost during the pandemic. But in fact, the the problem is much deeper. Professor, can you elaborate a little about what you think the learning crisis looks like in Ontario specifically, and if you can let our listeners know a little. About what exactly education crisis or learning crisis is. A learning crisis is that some students are not engaged in school at all. They may not be attending school. They certainly aren't succeeding at school.、Um, and there, there's the issue of educational outcomes. There's a, and the fact that the the students who are doing worst are are students from racialized and poor backgrounds.、Um, and during the pandemic, those 
problems were exacerbated and we had kids coming back to school with severe social deficits, uh, emotional deficits. A lot, there's a lot more violence right now in schools. There are many teachers are talking about, um, kids who haven't learned up to grade level. Uh, and many teachers are leaving the profession, um, because the pandemic was so incredibly difficult for them to do well um, as teachers and to succeed with students. We are we are having a teacher shortage now. I'm so sorry to hear the severe situation of the education crisis. So I want to ask you about um, what is the current policy of the educational crisis now, and do you think it's the policy addressing the crisis? There is very little support from the provincial government uh, who has jurisdiction over educational policy. Um, the only thing I've heard of is tutoring for individual kids. The fact is that this government has, has taken over a billion dollars of funding out of the educational system during the pandemic, and the fact that we have a $2 billion surplus in the province is largely because of that financial financial hole in in the educational system. Uh, without that source of um, income, schools are unable to provide adequate support for kids um, or for teachers. Classes are too big. The working conditions of teachers are unsatisfactory. So we have a real, I, I guess I would call it a policy gap. So Professor, you think that the policy gap is in terms of lack of financial aid from the provincial government or is there any other lacunas within the policy which are not really encouraging teachers to stay address the learning crisis? COVID itself is continuing and so COVID itself and now the flu and that other disease, um, which the, I can't remember the, the acronym for, um, are all real and they all cause serious disruptions in teaching and learning. So that's going on, but it's also the case, or and also it's the case, that the provincial government's response to these issues has been not only inadequate, but severely problematic. So due to the situation you mentioned before, what do you think what has to be changed of the educational policy? that we're addressing the severe problem currently. One issue, and it's a chronic issue, it's bigger than just the last few years, um, mm -hmm. is that education is uh, underfunded, severely underfunded. Mm -hmm. An infusion of money that is part of base budget, that continues on, that is not tied to particular small, short initiatives would be really important. Recognizing the support that kids and teachers need and ensuring that there are resources um, to support those support is really important. Uh, recognizing that the expertise of teachers is uh, something that needs to be respected and supported and enriched uh, would, would make a very big difference. So, Professor, as you mentioned, that there are really small changes that need to be funded and made sure that, you know, the education crisis is addressed through the ground level um, is actually something I totally agree with. Uh, can you elaborate a little more on what do you think are the key areas where the funds have to be 
increased by the government, provincial government, and how exactly can we innovatively use the funds, according to you, to actually maybe do better than we were after the pandemic with the in, like intervention of technological tools for education that are present and developing now? While technological intervention would be of some help and ensuring that all students and teachers have access to the appropriate um, physical technology, access to Wi-Fi, and so on, there that's not the whole answer. Having uh, people move back and forth very quickly without any preparation between uh, in-class in face-to-face learning and learning at home is problematic. Not all families have the resources to ensure that there are parents who can stay home and support their children uh, in their uh, online learning. Um, that's another uh, difference between children from poor backgrounds and, and children who are not from poor backgrounds. Class sizes are large, and one of the policy recommendations I would make um, is that there be that, that infusion of money that I've been talking about be used to hire more teachers to reduce class size. And I would also try to ensure that there are adequate resources for teaching and working conditions in schools so that teaching and learning are successful interactions. Uh, we want to know about the marginalized people because we have observed that there is a disproportionate educational effect on marginalized people that appears to be deepening and accelerating the inequity in educational outcomes. So could you explain the reasons behind this phenomenon and how it contributes to the widened gap of the educational crisis currently and what actions should be put forward to address the educational crisis among marginalized people during this situation? I've already mentioned that not all children come from families where parents have the luxury of being able to stay home from work and support their children's learning. That's a problem. Um, that's a social class problem because it, it affects different families in different ways. Students whose family lives in poverty, we've seen a lot of adolescents going to have to work instead of attending school in order to support their families financially. Students need a lot of attention from adults, and that is something that is sorely lacking, as I said, with the class sizes and the lack of human resources to support kids and there's the none of those issues are being addressed and this is why the gap is getting wider and why it's a social class gap and a, a race gap which is unconscionable i definitely agree with that and i feel all uh, pandemic has not brought this crisis but it's actually helped us realize how important it is to address it. So we know that one of the sustainable development goals talks about quality education and internationally a lot of other countries are kind of trying to change classroom formats and as I earlier mentioned they're trying to incorporate technology and they are making national level education policy changes incorporate that. So have you observed any sort of change in the education policy based on that goal or 
has, um, you know, the government tried to in any way include the factors of innovating the technology that is present? Or if you think that is actually a solution to the issue at all? Let's take the just uh, one example and talk about it. Let's let's talk about class size um, and let's talk about kind of learning uh, that is really ideal, particularly for young children, but also all the way through school. Um, there's a lot of research that says you, you can't just make changes in the primary years and then have everything look the way it's always looked in the um, education of older kids. When you have a small class, you have opportunities for teachers to get to know individual kids, to pay attention to them, to understand their learning needs. Students have opportunities to interact with each other and learn from each other. When classes are larger, they look more traditional. There are rows of of desks. There are Teachers teaching from the front of the room and all of the things I was saying about teachers getting to know kids and kids interacting are are not possible. It's an impoverished learning environment. And that is why part that is part of why the class size issue is so important. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Taking on your observation about how there's increase in violence and emotional burst by the children who are coming to school now. Uh, can you possibly uh, feel that there's the need to include mental health as part of the education policy? And how big is it in discussions in terms of whether it is being considered by the provincial government at all or by the schools at individual levels? Um, it's not much of an issue for the provincial government. Um, the The burden of trying to address students' emotional needs falls to teachers and the small numbers of school staff in addition to teachers who work in schools. It's it's just not on the government's radar at this time. Okay. Are there any other policy-related changes apart from increasing funding that you think the government can make to improve the situation? I think that the government... Um, needs to be more respectful toward teachers and have have the kind of respect that ensures that what's going on in schools and the ability of um, educators on the ground to communicate the the actual conditions of teaching and learning to decision makers at other levels, at the school board level, at the provincial level, is incredibly important. And there's a, a big gap. There's always been a big gap between the different levels of decision-making. And again, we see it. It's exacerbated now. Um, it's exacerbated with this particular government, and it's it's um, it's causing some problems. It's causing situations where the kinds of policies that are coming out from the provincial government are, are not productive and are, in fact, sometimes counterproductive. So what do you think there's some best way or better method for government to know more about what the actual situation of the of our teachers or what's really happening in our whole educational system. One thing that has happened over the course of the pandemic is that the teacher unions have 
started having regular meetings with educators at, at the school board level. And educators at the school board level uh, are have a, a pretty good sense of what's going on mm-hmm. in schools. Um, and so there's communication, and there needs to be communication uh, between uh, between government officials and unions and other educators um, at at multiple levels. People who work in different kinds of environments, for example, who work in in large bureaucracies like the Ministry of Education, um, it's understandable why they don't they don't quite get what's going on. They don't, their feet are not on the ground in schools and they need more information. And that will build more trust that will build better policy. Also, I think on a concluding note, can you also maybe share a few of your key findings while you were working on your project about teachers' work during pandemic? And how do you think that research would also maybe supplement the policy recommendations in terms of how we can improve the education situation in Canada in general? The pandemic really turned teachers' work upside down. Um, they were teaching different subjects. They were teaching different student populations. They were obviously teaching in different mediums online as well as um, in person. They were teaching according to different schedules, which made it difficult for students to retain and build on information in the secondary grade. And the conditions in schools were not safe. There were, there were not adequate safety measures put in place during the pandemic. One of the major recommendations coming out of the project that sort of ends the book that is coming out is that policy makers need to take teachers' working conditions, which are student learning conditions, very seriously, and they don't. And that's not just true of Ontario or Canada. That's that's true internationally. It's kind of a, it's knowledge that's not, not particularly well known, um, but it makes all the difference in the world in terms of the quality of learning and teaching. Um, what do you think students should be prepared or what they will be more adapted for the uh, educational crisis or the online format to do it more better on the online format? That's a very big question. I think that the whole way that technology is is rolled out and used pedagogically needs to be rethought. It's very difficult for children and youth to learn um, when they only see other people in a small rectangle on the screen, when they don't have opportunities to interact on a one-on-one basis. Educators are using things like chat rooms and shared documents and so on and using strategies to bring kids together to work on shared projects. The whole pedagogy of teaching and learning online needs to be thought about seriously. That's the biggest issue. Once again, that was Professor Nina Basia who joined us for a discussion on the learning crisis in Canada. Thank you for tuning in for Beyond the Headlines. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at Beyond Headlines, checking out our website www.beyondtheheadlines.net, or by following us on Instagram at Beyond Headlines. 
Thank you for joining us. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Beyond Headlines. We are a weekly public affairs talk show that airs every Monday at 11 a.m. on CIUT 89.5 in Toronto, online through our website and across podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This week, we are discussing the different strategies on the issue of the learning crisis in Canada. And underdeveloped countries, and we try to explore ways that can address the worsened learning crisis. Have you enjoyed the conversation so far? Want to add your voice? Send us a tweet at Beyond Headlines. If you have suggestions or feedback for our show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We are listening. Welcome back to Beyond Headlines. Our next guest is Professor Musa Blimpo. Professor Musa Blimpo is an assistant professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He formerly served as a senior economist in the office of the chief economist for the Africa region at the World Bank. His work on economics of education examines how critical demand-side features drive education quality and skills acquisition, particularly. Incentives and involvement of students and parents in the educational system. He is also a member of intellectual leadership team of the research on improving systems of education program, which seeks to understand how education systems in developing countries can raise learning outcomes. So, first of all, Professor Musa, thank you so much for being here. So、uh, today, I'd like to focus our discussion on the 2021 joint report. Uh, by UNESCO, UNICEF, and the World Bank, and it's called the State of the Global Education Crisis: Path to Recovery. So, according to this report, it talks about this education gap and the worsened learning crisis due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you first explain to our listeners what the education gap and learning crisis is, and just an overview of how this has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? So, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to、uh, to talk to you today. Uh, I think this is an important report in the aftermath of COVID-19,、uh, and I'm also glad to see that this report is jointly done by these three leading organizations because one of the issues of them is、uh, the lack of coordination in action trying to solve the same problem、uh, in the global south. So this is very encouraging to see that this is a joint report. The learning crisis was there before COVID-19.、Mm-hmm. The learning gap. Was there before、mm-hmm. COVID-19?、Uh, we have seen increasing number of reports where students in various countries in the global south, but oftentimes also among low-income communities in the north,、mm-hmm. uh, where the children are in school but are not learning. You take a sixth-grade student who is not able to read a full sentence, who is not able to do basic arithmetic、mm-hmm. uh, in places like Nigeria and some documentation in rural India. So we had already a problem, a global problem, a learning crisis where children were in school but not learning up to a standard. So that's the gap.、Uh, what COVID has done is that COVID has generated learning losses. There's a role for those who were already learning, you know, spend time at home、uh, without the environment to、uh, continue building and、uh, improving on the learning outcome. So these are separate but Very related issues, and、mm-hmm. I think、uh, going forward, countries will be looking for ways to remedy to、uh, both of these issues. So you spoke about how this is a global crisis. 
Um, but could you tell us about how this effect of COVID-19 is unique in developing countries? So, first of all, before I get to the specificity of developing countries, I think it's important for your listeners to understand that we are still not in a position to fully understand the extent of the impact because uh, the long-term impact is going to be much, much larger. Education is one thing where if you interrupt and are not able to remedy, uh, we've had a number of studies that have shown to us that a one-time gain and learning outcomes has led to very long-term economic impact, well-being, and all sort of desirable outcome. So you can understand that the reverse will be also true. A one-time massive learning loss will have and have a profound long-term impact. So it's not too late. Countries should try all they can try to catch up because, again, the impact in the long run is much more worrisome than what we have seen. Right now, we're talking about this score. In the future, 10 years, 15 years down the road, the consequence of these losses in test score will translate into losses of income, livelihood, and maybe rising crime, a lot of issues that we'll have to deal with. So it's worth investing to deal with these issues now. Now, coming to your question about the difference in the developing world compared to the developed countries. I mean, if you look at the infrastructure level, or the state capacity level. Clearly, poorer countries were less able to accommodate kids when they are at home. Even though in many places, including especially in Africa, the direct toll of COVID weren't as damaging as it has been in many parts of the world, Mm -hmm. countries did take drastic measures. Many countries did lockdown, they closed school, even as uh, the number of COVID deaths were very, very low. So I think uh, the impact in the poorer countries, even if they were less affected by COVID, may end up being much larger because they were also less able to provide support at home. We are talking about places, especially in rural areas, where even electricity access isn't there. We cannot think about digital uh, services the way we think about it here. It's true that some countries use radio, for example, to provide some support at home, but these were relatively uh, limited. So we can think that in terms of long term, that poorer countries may have suffered more. In the West, it's true schools were closed, but some efforts were also there to try to accommodate kids at home. It's true that you're going to get a lot of inequality due to the fact that the low income, low socioeconomic status may not have uh, easy access to internet services like like everyone. Uh, but overall, it's not clear you know, that the impact of COVID is just going to be larger in the countries that were the most affected by COVID because mm-hmm. it all depends on how the countries also accommodated uh, the drastic measures that they took against COVID. So you're basically saying that it's not so much how big of an COVID-19 impact was on itself, but it depends on like the accommodation and how resilient the community is depending on the resources they have or lack. Exactly. And that's why even in places like in Africa, mm-hmm. where the impact of COVID, direct impact was relatively low, uh, even a small uh, measure that the government takes will lack a lot of accompanying measures. And then you have large informal sectors. So this is just very difficult to provide support 
where it's needed, especially in the education sector for children at the lower grade level. That's actually a really great leeway to our next question, which is about the measures and policy. So our previous speaker spoke about Canada's experience, and they emphasized the issue of budget and the need to increase budgetary allocation towards education policy. And just as we discussed right now, for developing countries, they already have this constrained budget. Uh, could you tell us more about how the lack of funding and resources on education look like in these low-income countries? You make a very important point here about the resource constraint in the developing world. And oftentimes, everything is an emergency. Everything is a priority. They end up with a budgetary allocation. But if you look at the budget in many of these developing countries, a lot of times, social sectors like education and health uh, do take a lion's share of that budget. They do invest quite a bit in with the limited resources that they have. They do invest quite a bit uh, in the education and the health sector. Where I think the problem is, where I think the challenge is, where I think they can make a difference going forward in the, is the efficiency of the spending. Where does the money go? How do you use the money for effective uh, public services for the poor? Like if all the money goes to salaries and then uh, there is very little resources for the actual learning, mm-hmm. you get a different result than if you were able to allocate these resources more effectively. If you were able to minimize leakages, you know, uh, money that is intended for education and then not being used for other purposes, uh, there is a lot of ground there that can be gained. If you ask me priority number one, I would say that is the place to go. If you do that, then I think even the international community, the international organizations uh, can then help us a lot more. Now, it's not just about the amount of money in the places uh, in the global north, maybe in places like Canada here, uh, it may be just about getting more money in the system because you have a relatively functional system, uh, a governance structure, some checks and balances here and there. I think that should be the focus in the development countries try to improve along those lines so that, the, you know, even if we get additional aid money, we know that that money is going to make a lot of difference. So I wouldn't put a focus in the same way about give more money. I would say, show me that you can use the money effectively. And I think there's a lot of goodwill out there. There's a lot of uh, organization donors who will be willing to support if they can see that it's going to make a difference. Right, I see. It's not necessarily the amount of money, but it's their ability to use it efficiently and effectively. That's the part that we have to focus on for these developing countries. Exactly, and there is evidence that it's not being used effectively right now. The efficiency of expenditure isn't there. Could you tell us, our listeners, on maybe some examples where they have tried, but they it's still very limited? Organization like the UNESCO, there's an entire country, if I take the African continent, for example, uh, the UNESCO Institute that is based in Dakar, that's really one of the areas they are working on very closely with government. It's not just a matter of example, it's just relatively systematic. But they do do diagnostics, they, they work with government to plan. In the end, you can get only that much, you can make only that much difference unless on the ground, uh, the people who are really leading the charge are in the same dynamics, right? So a lot of time, the interest or the incentives, even simple things like the timing, the time horizon that we're thinking about uh, some of these issues isn't fully aligned among the different stakeholders. 
and then things end up breaking down where one group is uh, focused on one area and then the other group is focused on another area. It's not just about also spending the money, it's also about coordination. We may talk about this uh, later on, and that's why from the beginning of this uh, uh, interview, I told you this report is welcome. The very fact that it's three leading organizations coming together to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have five different organizations all trying to improve education in the same country with one government and they're pursuing different agendas, then you may end up actually doing even harm mm-hmm. rather than uh, improving the system because there's no longer one area of focus where everyone is coordinated trying to improve things. Right. So these are the areas I think uh, the focus will be. This is not to say that there's enough money sitting there. All I'm saying is uh, we need more money, but I'd like to see whatever we have already being used efficiently. That will justify getting more money. It will also make it much easier. Right. So on that note, we just to pivot a little bit more on the measures. I wanted to ask you about the learning data crisis that the report talks about. It says that to tackle the learning crisis, countries must first address the learning data crisis. What is this learning data crisis and why is it important for us, specifically for policymakers? Well, if you are not aware of an issue, it's just hard to think about coming up with an effective solution to an issue you're not aware of. Until relatively recently, we weren't even aware in a consistent way about how much children were learning. Granted, there's been a two, three decades of focus on getting the children in school, which is a much welcome effort. And the global community has played an important role for supporting developing, the developing world to achieve that. I hope we had also focused in the same way on learning outcome. It hasn't been, unfortunately. But there's recent increasing report that show in a very consistent way that we have children who spend three years in school and, not, and cannot do ABC and cannot do simple arithmetics. Uh, children finishing prior elementary school, sixth grade, and unable to read a full sentence mm-hmm. to articulate purely uh, uh, their thought, right? But this is uh, not a system in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. Is uh, some of these efforts were led by the USAID, the World Bank, but countries haven't been in a systematic way collecting data on a year-to-year basis how much the kids are learning. We have data on how many kids are in school, how many schools have been built. We may even have data on how many uh, desks and chairs are in the classrooms all across the country, but. The most important thing that the school is for, at the end of the day, we don't have data on it. At best, most countries may have some report about these high-stake uh, end-of-cycle exams, national exams that they, they give, sometimes grade 10, grade 12. So that's what the, the, where the crisis is. But I must say, this is not only in education. In the developing world, there is a general data crisis. Uh, we're talking about education here. And that's why we're talking about education data. And I think uh, there is a need, at least, even if there are trade-offs, you know, you can measure fewer of the other thing I was listing and then try to have a sample of a student to actually know how much they are learning. And that, there is also the other issue. I think many governments haven't understood that you can use statistical method and have a relatively small sample, just like the opinion polls that are regularly done here. You can test just a few thousand students, provided that you use cutting-edge sampling techniques to get a national representativeness, which would allow you 
to know how how much kids are learning. Right. You know, government thinks in our interaction with government, they think to think that uh, they tend to think that oh, you have to test every kid in the country. You don't need to. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's not all that expensive to just keep track of how many uh, the kids are are learning. So filling that gap is the first step to know how much progress you are making, and it's also the first step to get people to start thinking about the education system in terms of delivering skills, delivering Mm -hmm. learning, rather than getting kids in a school and then keeping them there. So I think uh, the crisis is really about the lack of measurement, uh, the lack of measurement in a consistent way, and finding innovative way to do that. It doesn't always have to be expensive. One caveat on you know, measuring learning outcome. We shouldn't fool ourselves to think that just measuring is going to be enough. Measuring is a, is, is a diagnostic tool. It helps you know where you are at. It doesn't necessarily provide answer to dealing with the, with the problem. And even worse is that if you don't measure carefully and then let that measure become a reference, then you could also derail school from its core mission. Instead of delivering skills and learning to children, uh, it may then become something that is just focused on delivering test scores. And you know that test scores relative, can be relatively narrow measure of what the kids are learning in school. Kids learn a lot more than uh, the grade that they get in the different exams. So measurement, yes, we need it in a consistent way, but we need to make sure that we, all, we measure broadly the skill, the set of skills that kids are supposed to learn at school is not just about solving math problems. It's also about a broad range of skills that so we need to think about the testing, what kind of testing need to be used and how to measure it and make sure that we don't let that test also become the mission of the school. Mm. Because then there's a lot of other things that schools are doing that we don't want them to stop doing that and just focus on improving the test. But I must agree that there is a there is a problem with the lack of data. We need to fix it. We need to fix it in a smart way. Right. So you're saying that the data crisis is not necessarily about not having a mechanism to measure, but it's that the current mechanism we have to measure the learning crisis is more on what is being done and kind of kind of like a checklist rather than looking at the outcomes, right? Whether the students are actually learning the skills that they should be learning. Yeah. And that's what's lacking in the measurement. So we measure we measure a lot of the inputs. Mm, inputs, but not the How outcomes. many teachers, how right. many classrooms, how many students. We have those data. Um, but how many countries on a year-to-year basis try to figure out what is my average fourth-year or fourth-grade student able to learn in this country? And we want government to start doing that. And it doesn't require massive amount of resources. It just requires planning and willingness to do that and seeing value in doing that. Would you say that's an issue everywhere right now? So not just developing countries, but also in developed countries? Well, in developed countries, I think the issue is uh, slightly different. Right? Like you have higher state capacity 
And there are various mechanisms, like, uh, and the, the learning crisis is nature is also a little bit different. Like if you take many countries, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where children still, uh, you know, many children and the large share of the children still have parents who themselves may not be literate, mm-hmm. uh, that means the issues that the kids are facing in school, especially in the early grade where they don't speak the instructional language yet, uh, it's a different kind of issue, right? Uh, in Canada here, you know, granted, there is an um, uh, increasing and large share of immigrants who sometimes may not speak the uh, English at the beginning and take time to, to learn and there is support for that. But you would expect, uh, you know, a large share of the kids on day one in school to already speak the language and then hear the teacher. So the issues can be different in, in that sense. But in the developed world, I would say it's not always also the case that uh, you have these uh, learning. Some deliberately choose not to also uh, track these measures. Some have uh, views on the fact that maybe you shouldn't be testing kids all the time, so we don't need to do that. Uh, but I think uh, the issue is more acute in the developing world uh, than in the developed world. Now, moving on to what you mentioned about innovative ways, the report states that this pandemic has actually forced the global education community to learn some critical lessons, such as transformation and innovation, and it mentions the adoption of technology. So I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are. Can you tell us more about the role of technology that can play in addressing the education crisis? Yes, technology can help. Uh, One issue is that we've come to have these uh, education system where you sit a group of kids in a classroom with an adult supposed to teach them one thing. Mm-hmm. But the kids have different levels. Any group of kids you will take to have different level of understanding. Mm-hmm. So how can one teacher attend 20 kids and in the developing world, 40, 50, 100 kids sometimes, believe it or not, mm-hmm. but yes, mm-hmm. uh, how can you attend their attention at their level? Because if you are way further from their level, you lose them. And then that's how the learning uh, loss and crisis accumulate. So technology can allow a classroom of 20 kids, 50 kids, to each be learning at their level and then helping the teacher be able to attend the one that are struggling the most, allowing the teacher to give different kids different assignments at the same time. This would not be possible without some of these information technologies, you know, the iPad or the or some other technologies that are available out there. So technology can make a difference, but technology is just a tool. If you look at the developed world where we still also have the learning crisis, including in the United States, uh, it cannot be by lack of technology. You know, some of the classrooms are quite sophisticated, even at the primary school level. If technology could make that big of a difference, uh, we wouldn't have a much issue in these places. Where so technology will not replace teachers. Right? Mm. It can help teachers do a better job, but it will not replace teachers. So which takes it back to the people at the center of dealing with the learning crisis. It will have to be the teachers, the parents, the students, and the administrators. Once the incentives are aligned to address the learning crisis, then technology can do wonders. It can help fill the gap where the gap is needed. But oftentimes, we end up thinking that, oh, iPad, all the content, we don't need books anymore. Everything goes on the iPad, and then you hand it out to the kids, and then wonders. No, plenty of studies now are 
shown to us all the limitations that uh, technology has. So I think uh, we should see it as a tool. Uh, we should step back to the fundamentals. When you get the fundamentals right, then technology can make a difference. Uh, you will also understand that in the developing world, some of these technologies are harder to use. Or like uh, you don't have uh, electricity, it's going to be hard to use technology that depends on electricity. Uh, internet access is uh, relatively low. We've tried uh, to use a technology in Haiti in one of my studies uh, several years back to try to address the uh, school management, whereas you can now use internet to communicate with the school rather than sending inspectors, which is a traditional way to set up everything. But then, you know, you don't have internet, uh, you know, every other day. Mm-hmm. All right. And then things start falling apart slowly. So there is a technical problem. But what I'm saying is that even if there weren't any technical problem, technology is not going to solve the problem unless the people, people's incentives are aligned to solve the problem, then they will use the technology to wonders. And if the incentives are aligned to solve the problem and then the technology is not there, they will come up with some rudimentary technologies and solve the problem. So we shouldn't be distracted away from the core of the problem, which is people at the center, the children, the teachers, the parents, the administrators. I want to discuss more about the technical problem that we're talking about. So technology is a tool that we can use and it can be effective, but some in fact worry that technology could in fact enhance greater inequality within and also among countries and in developing countries where they, where households don't have access to electricity or other resources that is required to have technology, this could be a big problem. So How can we ensure that technology, if we do adopt it as an innovative tool, is not becoming a source of greater inequality? Now, although this interview is on uh, education, you asked me a question now that is directly addressed in a recent report that I co-authored with colleagues at the World Bank, which will be forthcoming in a couple of weeks, where we are precisely making this point. Mm -hmm. Technology tends to be high-skill bias. For sure. In general, at least at the beginning, before it becomes uh, much more uh, ubiquitous. What we are arguing in that report is that um, uh, we should think about not just leaving the evolution of the technology, especially these information and communication technology, the ICTs, we should not just leave it to market. We should just leave it to market. Entrepreneurs are going to create apps and solutions that will earn them money. And then solving the poorest problem isn't the best way for you to make a lot of money. So we think there needs to be a little bit more engagement with the governments and the international organization, the donors, to try to push entrepreneurs to also focus on coming up with solutions that will be low-skill buyers, create solutions that are adapted to the local, to the needs of the poor, uh, rather than just adapted to the needs of the market, which will then tend to create more inequality. So inciting entrepreneurs, empowering local entrepreneurs to solve problems that affect disproportionately the poor mm. uh, would be one way to, to do that. But we do talk a lot more about the low-skill bias approach to uh, making sure that technology is inclusive. Uh, from the beginning, uh, so that the apps aren't only developed to solve the problem of those who can pay for those problems. Right? So that's uh, one way I would see it. But the other way is, to, and, and I think it's related, you know, we don't need always to jump to the frontier of technologies. 
I mentioned earlier, like during COVID in a place like Gambia, what they use is radio because uh, uh, everyone has access to radio. Uh, the coverage is quite high. So they organize around radio to to deliver some content to students uh, at home at a very specific uh, schedule, uh, time, and all that, right? So instead of trying to use internet where in the country maybe less than 20% have access to the internet, uh, they came up with a solution that will include the most, uh, the most people, right? It doesn't include the rich. You have internet, but you probably, if you have internet, you probably have access to the radio. So you can also uh, use the radio to follow, right? So I think in the development world, we need to look at context specific solution. Mm-hmm. We don't need mm-hmm. to jump at the frontier of, uh, of knowledge if it's not necessary. It's only when it's necessary that we should try to leapfrog further and adopt cutting edge technology. So there's a lot of other things that could be done. You could, uh, you know, you could think about after school tutoring programs. You could even use higher grade students to mentor or tutor lower grade students. So when you are at this low level of development with limited resources, you try to use what you have mm-hmm. and what you can make work well for you. And I think the, um, oftentimes, because some of the policies in the global south is driven by the global north, uh, we tend to jump to the frontier with the drones uh, to to do such and such, or like high-end uh, smart board to solve a problem, I don't know. I think we need to step back and look at uh, what are the possible solutions locally that can address the problem at a way that is also cheap mm-hmm. and affordable to the people. So I think technology, uh, if left alone, at least in the short, medium term, will tend to be high skill bias. It can widen inequality, but there is a room for policymakers to step in uh, through some regulation, but mostly through incentives to get entrepreneurs to come up with solutions that are inclusive from the beginning. Some might question why should developed countries or why should international organizations care so I think uh, for this question, even if that is not the primary driving force, I think there is a moral imper- imperative. We are human beings, and I think it's going to be hard for any uh, sensible human being to look at the children in the eyes and say, you are not going to school, bad luck. Whereas a lot of time, it doesn't actually take much to get them to school and change life. Second thing is, we end up paying the price also one way or the other. It may not be your problem that uh, a child in Syria isn't going to school today, but it may be your problem in 20 years uh, when that child has limited opportunity and has to take all that the option that they have to have what they see as a successful life. And that may not be something, that may be something you don't like at that time, right? So there is a, an element of self-interest as well. And if you look at labor mobility around the world, migration, you look at the, the population in the much advanced countries that have achieved already population transition, like it or not, there will be a need for more connection among the people in the world, more migration. And I think uh, if you are Canada, if you are the United States, uh, you rather want to have people who are well-educated, well-trained, that are also educated in ways that are consistent with perhaps uh, your values or understanding of of the uh, among nations to be heading your way. So there is an element of self-interest. When a Canadian firm goes to Nigeria to operate, 
it will be good if uh, there is uh, the skill that they need right there mm. uh, to be able to run their operation. So there are so many reasons, self-interest, why uh, you will want to invest in places that are able to invest. These reasons are much more obvious in health. We are talking about mm. COVID mm. learning losses here. Well, if you don't invest in health, uh, public health, a problem in the small village somewhere, uh, in the global south can become your problem within hours, okay. right? So it's much or much more obvious with health. It's the same thing for education. So there's a big element of self-interest, but I will always start with the moral values. Like just look at a child and tell me why if you could help, you wouldn't help just because they happen not to hold a passport that we as humans drew borders and then, you know, made up at some point in our history. So I think there is a strong moral value to do as much as we can when we can. Uh, but beyond that, as an economist, I can give you 10 reasons mm-hmm. why you are interested in doing that as a developed country. So just to wrap it up, last question. In your opinion, then, how does an appropriate and sustainable education policy look like to you? And how would they be different on a domestic jurisdiction versus the international perspective? So, well, if you, so I was part of this uh, uh, research program at the University of Oxford, focusing on the system approach to addressing the learning crisis, right? We tend to jump to, you see a problem, you try to solve that problem. But when you step back, you often realize that the problem is a symptom of something else rather than the, the problem itself. So I think the, an education system that will work well should adopt a system-wide approach to try to have all the actors, all the stakeholders, their incentive align in a way that is coherent and in a way that is geared toward the ultimate outcome that they set for themselves, which I believe would be the learning outcome plus maybe certain things that the society will decide that they want the school to deliver. Once you have that coherence in the system, what would happen is that you will have a system that even when there are challenges, it will tend to self-correct itself. And I don't think there's anyone other than the leaders mm. in these developing countries to take the lead on that. When that system is in place, when that political will is in place, then the international community can help a lot more by focusing on areas where these countries may not be able to do themselves. Sometimes is a feeling the funding gap, but I don't think even that is the primary thing. But there is a lot of areas in terms of global public goods that the international community is able to provide that these countries individually will not be able to provide for themselves. So that's the way I would see it. I think the countries, the leaders, to try to think about ways to gradually move toward a system where the incentives are aligned to achieve the learning goal. When that happens, then you will, you will start seeing what is used as a reference to assess the school system. You will start seeing people, you know, ministers of education talking about learning outcome. I have I've rarely heard them mm. talk about learning outcome as part of any political statement. It's always about we increase teacher salary, we hire this many teachers, we build this additional number of classrooms. So if we have a coherent system, I think, uh, you know, because the local context matters for that coherent system, I think it's really the responsibility of the local leaders of the countries themselves 
the international community can focus more on the frontier learning standard, global public good, certain data gathering can be done uh, with the global community. Certain expertise is limited in the world, so they can provide that to uh, low-income countries. And I think that division of labor, together with some coordination, coordination is definitely needed. There's so many actors there in some countries. Uh, you may have up to 10 different organizations all trying to improve the same outcome. And then you have the administrators there in the middle with limited time as everyone. So I think coordination, system-wide thinking for the local and then global public good with the international community, the, the multilateral organizations will be um, a good way to go. And this report that you talked about in this interview is a good start. It's a, it's a joint report, World Bank, UNESCO, UNICEF. That's a, it's amazing. It's great. That means already it's a start of a conversation, a start of alignments on ways to uh, so they won't be duplicating, uh, they won't be overlapping, they may try to coordinate, okay, World Bank, you are strong here, you focus on that, UNESCO is strong here, focus on this, UNICEF on children, sexualized. I think uh, in that kind of world, we will be moving gradually toward uh, closing this gap. Thank you so much. That was very insightful. I'd like to thank you again for this fruitful discussion. Thank you very much. It's definitely my pleasure and uh, thanks for having me. You have been listening to Beyond Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Professor Nina Bastia and Professor Mosa Blimpo. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss the learning crisis in Canada and underdeveloped countries and the strategies that can address the widened education gap. Today's show was produced by myself, He Liu, alongside my co-producers, Yunji Huang and Anukriti Randev. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the reviews of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you are a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond Headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airways.